there's so many great um, appreciations coming out about your dad now. Do you, do you think he'd be happy with them? Well, I think that um, what he would love is what I found on Twitter, which was people saying things like, if anybody refers to him as the Tommy boy or first blood actor, I'm blocking you. And he would get such a kick out of that. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 697, Remembering Brian Dennehy. Ryan and I received a text from our friend Elizabeth Dennehy last Wednesday night that simply said this line from King Lear, Vex not his ghost, oh, let him pass. He hates him that would upon the rack of this tough world stretch him out longer. And that's how we found out that her father, the great American actor Brian Dennehy, had died. Elizabeth has been on the podcast before, talking with us about Star Trek and Twelfth Night. So I asked her if she wouldn't mind coming on again to remember her dad with us. You shared with me some of the tweets you were getting from well-known people, celebrities, and and the, and the wide range of people whose work your dad um, uh, uh, impressed is amazing. Because I was getting the same thing from people who aren't celebrities, just friends from all walks of life saying, oh my God, I loved him in this or this or this. I, he was one of my favorites. He was one of my p- mom's favorites. Your dad was an unexpected sex symbol too, I oh. think, Elizabeth. I heard that my whole life. Like my mother has the biggest crush on you. And then I started hearing from friends of mine as we got older. Oh my God, I've always had the biggest crush on him. And it was like, ew. You know, I, I've i been privileged to know him because I'm privileged to know you. And 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 we went got to see him in Death of a Salesman in London. And then he took us all out to dinner at the Ivy afterwards. And he is holding forth as the great Irish storyteller that your father was. And we're all just, you know, jaws dropped, you know, thoroughly entertained. And you're sitting at your end of the table, chin in your hand, Eyes rolling because, of course, you've heard these stories before. First of all, I'd like to say that I think half of the reason he became an actor is for the after the show and the bar and the holding forth and the stories and the drinks. I'm sorry. Are there other reasons? (laughs) Exactly. And I, I have that, too. I love that. I love the you finish a show and then you go and have the the go to the pub. And um, he would always talk about, you know, the great crazy days in the 80s and the um china club and you know he was a wild party animal until he couldn't anymore um you know so the, he would tell crazy stories about you know he um, was uh, he was holding forth specifically about being filming the movie gorky park with, yeah yeah with well imagine imagine he was 21 when i was born and when I was 16, that's when Semi-Tough came out. So I was probably 14 when he shot that movie. And imagine for a guy who's so 35, he's in Texas with Burt Reynolds and Chris Christopherson. I mean, he he was he did everything backwards. He had the family and the children when he was really, really young. And then he goes out to Hollywood and he had his frat years. Yeah. 
He yeah, his, he lived long, and he's a great old type. I mean, uh, Chris Jones in the Chicago Tribune called him a great uh, tragedian of the old school, and that seems really right, both on stage and off stage. He he lived this large, boisterous life, and he took big swings. I think Bob Falls might have said this. He took every time out on stage. He didn't want to go on stage and do something puny. If he was going to go on stage, then goddammit, he was going to do something important and real and worth the struggle, worth the time. I remember yeah. when, when, when I interviewed him for the podcast, I was marveling at the fact that at that point in his career, it was all about the process. It was all about the work, not not the getting, not the performing for people, but the being in the rehearsal room and figuring shit out. Yeah, he first of all, um, he and his brother, my uncle Ed, who was a lovely actor, also his younger brother, they because a lot of people have been asking me where did all the acting start because there was nobody in the family who acted before. They, when they saw discovered Marlon Brando and Streetcar Named Desire and On the Waterfront, they would quote On the Waterfront. And all of a sudden, and he said this before, he saw this guy who didn't look like Olivier or Gilgood or this highfalutin, you know, elitist idea of what theater is, but a guy who was from the street and tough and rough and seeing somebody like that, you know, made them feel like, oh my God, we could actually do this. And they were so inspired and they quoted on the waterfront and anytime it was on TV, we were all made to watch this. And, you know, then they started creating the uh, Amityville Community Theater and they always, always did theater. There was theater going on from the time I was little. So they were hugely inspired by that. But the other thing is that's really important to remember about my dad is he was inspired by people like that inspired by Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole and Oliver Reed and that whole like larger than life you know life of the party persona was what really you know inspired them and they wanted that life but my dad also at the age of what 20 526 had three children and a wife and was doing all these odd jobs to take a risk like like to try to actually pursue being an actor. If you didn't have a family, if you didn't have a wife and three mouths to feed and uh, a house to own and support and keep, it's hard enough. But it was such a huge gamble for a character actor to just leave all of that and say, I'm going to do this. He would, would say all the time, I had to succeed. It was not an option. So we went out at full throttle. And, you know, he had to succeed. There was no ifs, ands, or buts. He had to. So it had to be worth it. And when he finally did start to see people paying attention to him, he went in there and he grabbed it by the throat and he grabbed the audience by the throat. And if it wasn't a part worth his time doing, he didn't have time for that. He went at it, you know, full tilt. He had to succeed and it had to be worth his time. So he used to say all the time, it's not worth doing if it doesn't terrify you. And you can't go at it with a safety net. You know, well, and, and he and he, he might have done, he didn't, I'm sure he didn't get the parts in Hollywood that challenged him to the degree that the parts challenged him in theater. But, you know, there are other compensations. There are actual compensations yes, yes. in Hollywood. Yes, he needed to make the money. And the other thing that I like to say is like, so 35 is when he was shooting semi-tough. Had my dad, looking the way he looked, 
gone to theater school, came out of theater school at 22, I don't think he would have worked until he was, he had to grow into his look. He was a character actor. So he might've done what normal actors do, graduate from a theater program, what my son is doing and kicked around and gotten, you know, rejected, 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 and maybe given up. Yeah. But I think because he lived his life, supported his family with, you know, you know, he was a security guard at a motel. He was a meat trucker. He was fell into this Wall Street job, you know, Maness Williams and Seidel working with Martha Stewart, which was crazy, doing all these odd jobs. And then at the age of 34, always doing theater, you know, then was suddenly discovered after 10 years, he was an overnight sensation, discovered by an agent, did streamers, Mike Nick was suggested to Mike Nichols, you know, semi-tough, he was recommended. And then I think he started working when he would have started working had he been kicking around trying to be an actor all those years. Uh, and I say that a lot of times, I'm a teacher now and I see kids, burly kids, kids who are ca definitely character actors. And I'm like, don't give up. You're gonna have to grow into your look. You know, don't give up too soon because you're not going to start working until you are a man because you look like a full grown man now. Uh, and I think that's an important thing for actors to remember. Well, and one as a fellow character actor, one of my favorite <laughs> roles uh, that uh, that I saw him in was in Cocoon, where yeah. he was this gentle, hopeful, mm -hmm. benevolent figure, a, a role he didn't typically get to play. Although I would say that 10 probably made Ron Howard think of him because in 10, which he was, I think he was 36 when he shot 10. And apparently, according to the legend, his agent, Susan Smith, had to talk him into it because imagine a young actor, he's reading the script and Dudley Moore and all these hilarious actors have all the funny bits. And he was the eye of the storm. Right. He was the bartender, the wise, calm, affectionate. Um, yeah jocular, you know, bartender, and he was the calm in the center of the, all that maelstrom of comedy and hijinks. And after 10, that was when the world really started to pay attention and he didn't have to audition anymore for parts. They were, he just started receiving offers. So I think that role is very similar to the one he played in Cocoon. <laughs> Hey, it's Robert Falls, the Artistic Director of the Goodman Theatre here in Chicago, and you are listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Enjoy. Where can you RSC the RSC? Right now, the best place to see the RSC, the remote Shakespeare Company, is online. This Saturday, April 25th, 2020, Reed Martin and I will host a live Q&A on Facebook at 1 p.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. in California, 2 p.m. in New York, and 7 p.m. in London. Please join us on Facebook Live for that conversation this Saturday, April 25th. We've also created a brand new page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, where right this second you can watch us perform many of our 
epic abridgments from the comfort of your own shelter. Right now, you can see the Ring Reduced, where we transform Wagner's 17-hour ring cycle into a brief and palatable 23 minutes. Lost Reduced, where we cram the first five seasons of the landmark TV show Lost into 10 minutes. Our appearances on two Jeopardy! tournaments of champions, plus some brand new videos recorded and shot especially for right now by me and Matthew Croak. And you can also see the video of our remote reduced reunion of over 50 RSE actors, stage managers, and wardrobe goddesses from at least four time zones from the last 25 or 30 years of, of working with the RSE. We'll continue to add to this page at our website, so please be sure to bookmark it. You can grab your very own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. It is perfect for homeschooling little kids of any age, and it's on sale worldwide. You can also find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. You can hear us, of course, via this podcast, and our other recordings are available at Apple Music. If you're working from home or binge listening, please leave us that five-star review you've been meaning to leave. Our two weeks of performances of the complete history of comedy abridged at the Hartford Stage Company in Connecticut have now officially been moved to the first two weeks of October, from October 1st to the 11th, 2020. Go to hartfordstage.org for more information. And as always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to reduceshakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office, venue, and ticket information. Now back to my conversation with Elizabeth Dennehy, talking about her father, Brian Dennehy, who sadly passed away last week. One of the great things about him is that the he was enormously intimidating. You know, every time I met him, he's just a very intimidating guy. And when I interviewed him for the podcast, I, I felt good that I made him laugh on several occasions. I went, okay, whew, thank you. He, he Brian's not going to kill me today. Good. Um, but... Uh, you know that was that was I, that was absolutely part of who he is. But he also had such enormous um, generosity to the process and to the play. When we saw him in Iceman Cometh, it's a five-hour play. He's on stage the entire time. He's sitting there for most of it, and and yet an old guy. He was seventy-three with bad knees. Had to <laughs> leap out of his chair at several moments and draw focus. He not only had to give focus for four hours and fifty minutes, but in a couple of places he had to seize focus, yeah. and he absolutely did. So his his understanding of of not only his role but how his role functions in the greater whole, whether it's the bartender in ten. Or Harry Slade, Larry Slade in Iceman Cometh is is phenomenal. Well, he used to tell me when I was auditioning and kicking around and, uh, you know, feeling bad because I didn't get a part. He would say to me this and I say this to my students all the time. He would say, God, I miss auditioning. He said, now I get offered all the same kind of parts all the time. They see me in something and they think, oh, he'd be good for this. So then I get offered that same part. If you did one presumed innocent, then all the offers are going to be that type of role again, which got to be a little bit boring for him because like I said, he didn't want to waste time, you know, spinning, you know, just spinning his wheels, doing the same thing. He always wanted to challenge himself. He always wanted to scare himself. So he said, I loved auditioning. I used to love walking into a room and surprising people. They would see me and they go, oh, this is this type of guy. This is what he does. And then he would surprise them. And he said, I love that. And he would say, 
you know, you're, you're, don't go in there trying to get a job. They have a problem to solve. And here I am, the solution to your problems. Here I am, the answer to your prayers. You think you know who I am? I'm going to show you everything I can do. He loved it. He loved it. And I think in the early days, he did something like 50 TV episodes in one year. So we got really good at walking into the room and surprising them and grabbing the part and being the solution to their problems. And the first time I saw him on stage was in the Peter Brooks production of A Cherry Orchard uh, at Brooklyn Academy of Music in the 80s, 88, I want to say, yeah. something like that. And uh, and we know him from the movies. Oh, here's this big burly guy from the movies. And yet he, and, and he was the, the boorish capitalist who literally knocks down the the only bit of standing scenery in the thing and we were we were dazzled by how for a big guy what a nimble uh graceful figure he is on stage and that he took this big pratfall literal pratfall he falls over backwards in the thing it was very powerful and then to see him in the lobby as just another new york actor with his actor bag over his shoulder it was yeah. like oh my god here's this Here's this movie star who's one of us, you know? Yeah, I think that the combination of playing football and being an actor, you know, he just, he really knew um, how to stand up straight and make an entrance. You know, he really knew how to command that physicality. And like you said, be intimidating when it needed to be, but also be tender when it needed to be. I remember when we saw him do Death of a Salesman in London, um, I don't know if you remember, he was very sick then. He had a tear in his, I think he had a stomach hernia. Right. Do you remember that? I do remember that. He was really sick. And, um, you know, there's a scene in that play where he gets, and, you know, he's always had bad knees, football injuries. And he got knocked to the floor by the sons in the restaurant. And I'm sitting there going, he physically cannot do what he just did. If you asked him to do it in the living room, he couldn't do it, get knocked to the floor. And I remember watching going, oh my God, how is he gonna get up? And then he got up. Right. So it's like that, you know, you get that adrenaline where you're a mom and you can lift a car off your child. That's, it would just take over and he would do, I think the most physically demanding thing he did was that sitting as Larry Slade all that those hours, that was murder on him, yeah. on the spine and the hips and the, you know, I'm so well, glad my kids don't play football. And he did say he did say they gave him a, a special padded chair. It was a little higher, and it was yeah. definitely padded. There was a there was a throne quality to the chair Larry Slade was sitting on, which was also not inappropriate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, when he would, did craps, yeah, I was just going to say when he did craps last tape, he has to stumble and fall, and um, you know, he was a typical no-assed Irishman, so they had padded shorts because he kept hitting his tailbone on the back of the desk. And they were things that he did that he literally could not do, and he would do them on stage. What like, are some of the performances that are of his that are your favorites? Like, what, if we, what should we watch to get the perfect, uh, your impression of your dad? Well, unfortunately, I wish that they had filmed A Touch of the Poet because, you know, he, Kathy and I, my sisters and I would go to Chicago to see all the plays that he did in Chicago. I saw Rat and Skull, which was extraordinary. Where you met your husband. Found my husband. Yep. Um, but uh, Touch of the Poet, this is a funny story. I think I can tell this now. You know, so he and Bob Falls would come up with um, what's the next big, huge hurdle we can, we can tackle together. 
And he said he was doing Touch of the Poet, which I don't know if you've ever seen or tried to read. It is massive, mammoth. I think it's probably the hardest role. And he said, yeah. And I said, wow. And so he went out to Chicago and he called me like a week later. He said, I got to quit. I got to, it's too hard. And I, and I said to James, I said, oh my God, I bet you he didn't even read it before he said yes. And he would just fly by the seat of his pants that way. He would only do things that absolutely terrified him. And that was, my sister and I were sobbing at the end of that. It's a story about a wife and a daughter who are kind of like browbeaten by the, um, you know, bullying master of the house, my dad. And then something happens where they get their wish and he becomes this meek, mild, gentle, like they get their, it's like one of those be careful what you ask for plays. And to see him be so diminished and demeaned. It was so powerful. It was really, really painful to watch. I wish that that um, could be seen by everybody. That was brilliant, a brilliant show. Um, but in terms of recorded stuff, he would love it if people watched Belly of an Architect. He was very proud of that. It's um, a hard watch, it's Peter Greenaway. So it's uh, a wild trip, but he's amazing in that film. He's amazing in all of his films, but that was, again, something that terrified him. Ter something that terrified him. He, it wasn't worth doing if he didn't at some point go, oh my God, can I do this? That's the way he was. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Send us your favorite performances of Brian Dennehy via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans at our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSC Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and you, should, and you can also follow Elizabeth Dennehy on Twitter at Dennehy Eliza. Thanks, as always, to wise, gentle bartender Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, and music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Irene Polderman. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Robert Falls, the artistic director of the Goodman Theater in Chicago, and Brian Dennehy's closest artistic collaborator for at least the last 30 years. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe and stay home. I'm Austin Titchener, 697 2091sts of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Myself, I'm going right now to uh, binge all of his episodes from 30 Rock. I love seeing your dad do comedy. Oh, yeah, he was really funny. Did you ever see him on, he was hilarious, I thought, on Just Shoot Me. I never saw that. Oh, he played David Spade's dad. He was like this big, um, fi like a fireman, like an old fireman. And he just completely believed that his son was gay. My gay son. And he, David Spade was like, I'm not gay. I thought it was very, very funny. Really funny. And uh, is it Wendy Malick? Yeah. Was always like coming on to him and flirting with him. Very, very funny. Yeah, he was, he was hilarious. He was a really funny guy. And yes, he loved to tell stories in bars. Well, and it also shows his enormous range from Eugene O'Neill to playing both David Spade and Chris Farley's dad. Not to mention John Wayne Gacy. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh. Um, so here's my wife, Dee Ryan, who's interrupting this podcast recording. Oh, shit. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Hi, D. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.